This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. As Theresa May prepares to unveil her Brexit deal, we ask, just how bad is it? And whatever happened to no deal is better than a bad deal? In the American midterms, the blue wave didn't happen, but Democrats did take control of the House of Representatives. So what's next for Trump's presidency? And last, as we approach Remembrance Sunday, we look at some of the lives we are remembering and ask, is it now time to move on? First, Theresa May is serving up two fairly unpalatable options when it comes to Brexit. It's her deal or no deal. If we take her deal, Britain risks being tied to the EU forever through the customs union. But if there's no deal, the country will face a period of instability and disruption that we're simply not prepared for. James Forsyth argues in this week's magazine that she's serving up an impossible choice. He joins me now, together with Charles Grant, director of the Centre for European Reform. James, you start your piece by saying that Brexit has been served and it's her deal or no deal. Can you explain to us what Theresa May's deal is? So you might think that her deal is all about the future, what what the relationship with the UK and the EU is going to be like in 10 years' time. Really, though, at the moment, everything has boiled down to the backstop because the, the nature of this is that there's going to be a withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU and then a trade deal negotiated. The biggest stumbling block to getting a withdrawal agreement is this whole question of the Irish border. And back in December last year, you know, the UK and the EU signed off on something called a joint report, which made various commitments on the Irish border. The UK government view was, oh, don't worry about this. This is a classic Brussels fudge. You know, the words are open to interpretation. You know, we, we think it means this. They think it means that. What then happened was the, the EU defined what they thought it meant and basically made it quite clear that if you wanted to carry on talking, you had to accept what they meant. And at that point, Theresa May, realising she was in a hole, had two choices, I think, really. One, she could say, right, if you won't drop this, it's going to be no deal. Or she could try and dig and make the hole big enough to fit the hole of the UK in rather than just Northern Ireland. She concentrated on the latter course, and she has had some success with this strategy. So the EU is now prepared to kind of theoretically accept a whole UK-wide backstop. But there are kind of three problems with this. First of all, the EU is like, well, it's a backstop. So you can't just pull out of this when you want to pull out of it, which leaves sceptical cabinet ministers wondering, how does the UK get out of this backstop? That's the first problem. The second point is the EU are like, well, if you're going to be inside a customs union with the EU, we've got to know that you're not using this to try and undercut us. So they want a whole series of level playing field provisions, which, again, I think several cabinet ministers will bulk at because it hugely restrict the kind of freedom of action of the UK government. And then there is the third question, which is perhaps the most important in terms of getting this deal through Parliament. How much of a Northern Irish backstop remains once you kind of scrape away the UK backstop? Because what we're talking about here is customs, not regulation. And so it's quite clear that Northern Ireland will be closer in regulatory terms to the EU than the rest of the UK, even under this UK-wide backstop. So those are the kind of three challenges for Theresa May to... I don't think she needs to come up with a perfect answer to, to any of them, but she needs to come up with enough to satisfy her cabinet and then parliament. And Charles, James says in his piece that this is a very unpalatable choice that Theresa May is now offering. Do you agree with that? Well, it's unpalatable if you thought that by voting to leave the EU you were going to take back control of a lot of things like laws and regulations, because 
the truth is that, that Brexit always involved a very painful trade-off. If you wanted to have regulatory sovereignty, you can have it, but you're going to have to cut economic ties with the continent and create economic barriers to trading with the continent. Or if you want to have the benefits of being economically close to the continent, you give up the sovereignty. That was always the trade-off. And I think rather late in the day, a lot of senior Tories are realising that is a painful trade-off and that they, you have to come down somewhere in the middle along the spectrum. And that means that we're going to be de facto in a customs union for a very, very, very long time. I mean, after the general election last year, I remember some of us felt that with a majority in Parliament for some sort of customs union, that looked like being a likely outcome. It will be a customs union for a long time. It'll be a customs union until the EU says we can leave the customs union. And if we're free to leave it, that's fine. But in effect, if we want to leave the all-UK customs union with the EU, there will be a Northern Ireland-specific customs union with the EU, in addition to the fact that Northern Ireland will in any case stay in the single market with the EU in terms of regulatory checks on goods and farm goods. There will have to be checks on goods crossing the Irish Sea in future when they go from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. If the customs is sorted out, as, as James says, by, by this all-UK customs union, but single market checks on goods and farm goods will have to be made on goods that cross the sea. You can make them as unobtrusive as possible and try and do the checks away from ports and airports. Some of them can be done at factories or points of sale, but there will be checks across the RSC because this is the way to ensure that there will be no hard border between the two parts of Ireland. And Mrs May, to her credit, is stuck by that promise and that commitment and sees this as a way forward for that. That's one reason why she's effectively putting Britain in a customs union. The other reason is she's been massively lobbied by manufacturing industry, telling her that if we're not in a customs union with the EU, there'll be big, big problems for investment and jobs and growth in Britain. That's the second reason why she's ended up doing this. James, the other option is, of course, no deal. I mean, do you think that's now becoming far more likely? I think there's about a 40% chance of no deal. The reason why the chance of no deal aren't higher is, first of all, as Charles says, no, no deal was always going to be disruptive. You know, even with all the planning in the world, it would be disruptive. But because the government has done so little work on trying to kind of mitigate no deal, you know, I, I think, that, you know, I was talking to someone very involved in these discussions, and they said to me last night, I'm a fairly gung-ho Brexiteer, but even I bulk at no deal. Because it's not only that there is the inherent disruption in no deal, but there is no proper government work to mitigate this. You know, you know all the things that you, you could have done, both in terms of coming up with an alternative economic strategy for no deal and in working out how to kind of get round the Dover-Calais choke point, you know, none of that stuff has really been done. And you know, it, it is now too late. I mean, one of the other massive arguments that weighs on cabinet ministers' minds against no deal is that no deal means there's no transition period. You know, no deal means that the UK leaves the EU on March 2019 and then everything falls away. That, I think, is why people who really dislike the May deal really worry about the backstop and getting trapped forever. Why even they are likely to go along with it is because they do worry about no deal. I and mean, you know, one of the great ironies of this whole situation is that, that, that whether intentionally or not, the government's kind of failure to prepare for no deal, to, to failure to kind of take no deal planning seriously, has become one of Theresa May's strongest cards in getting her deal through. And James, why is there no way of getting out of it? I mean, there was a way of getting out of the EU. Why is, why is there no way of getting out of May's deal? So this, I mean, this is the irony, which is, you know, if you want to leave the EU, every member state of the EU under the Lisbon Treaty has a kind of unilateral right to leave, that they invoke Article 50 and two years later they go. The EU argue that what they want on Northern Ireland is, a, is, is what they call an all-weather backstop. So e.g. that this guarantees that there is no hard border in, in, on the island of Ireland, whatever happens. And they say that because that has to be 
permanent backstop. You can't have a mechanism of the UK simply saying, we want to leave this backstop. So we then get into kind of proper international law, arcane stuff, which is, you know, could you come up with some kind of mutual review mechanism with arbitration, which would mean that the EU couldn't, through kind of ill will or bad faith, keep the UK in a backstop when the backstop was not actually genuinely necessary. And Charles, so we're talking about May's deal and no deal, but do you think there's another option at this stage that we should also be thinking about? No, there's no other option. But May's deal is a, can be all things to all people if you look at the future relationship. I mean, the political declaration on our future economic ties with the EU is going to be left pretty vague in most respects. So if, like many Eurosceptics, you really believe in the Canada model, a fairly loose free trade agreement, then there'll be enough language in the political declaration to make you think you can get Canada. If, like some people in the government, you, you rather like the Chequers plan for Britain to stay in the silver market for goods and farm goods, then there'll be language in that declaration to make you think you might get there in the end. It'll be, it'll be fudged in order to maximise the chances of it passing through Parliament. But my own take on that is that having talked to people on the EU side, although they're going to not humiliate the Prime Minister by saying no way Chequers ever, in practice they are strongly pushing Britain towards the Canada-type model. They don't like the single market in goods, the so-called common rule book. They don't like that idea at all because they say it. the four freedoms are indivisible. If you did split them up for Britain, you've allowed Britain to stay in parts of the market, single market, without freedom of movement, then Switzerland might ask for the same thing and maybe Hungary or Italy would ask for the same thing. Furthermore, they don't trust the British to actually stick by the idea of being a rule taker, taking all the rules from Brussels dutifully, as Mrs May said that they would in the single market for goods. And thirdly, they, as people said to me in Berlin recently, Brexit has to be seen to carry a cost. Uh, if, if Brexit isn't clearly uh, disadvantageous for the country leaving the EU, then other countries might follow you out. So for all those reasons, they're never going to give us the single market in goods. They actually agree with Boris that Canada-type deal is better, which would be more damaging to our economy, but would give Britain more sovereignty on, on that spectrum. James, the EU have, of course, stitched up Theresa May before. I mean, how do we know they're not about to do the same thing again over this deal? I, I think there is a problem, which is it is quite clear from the actions of the government at the moment. But it, the UK is desperate for a November council that will come up with a deal. And as anyone would know in a negotiation, if you are the person who is clearly running out of time, the other side are going to take advantage of that. I think that one of the one of the reasons I put the chance of no deal at, at, as high as forty percent is I think mean, you know pretty much every point in this negotiation Theresa May has has backed down. I mean the danger is that the EU could find Theresa May's bottom line on the union and think that she will back down and then find actually this is the one thing on which she won't budge. I, th I think you put the chances too high, James. I mean, you're, you're right that they may be approaching Theresa May's bottom line, but if there, if there is a crisis and she says no, then the EU just sits back and waits for the British to come back because as the cliff edge approaches of March 29th, the financial markets start to react. Everybody in Britain will start to get scared and the Tory party will start to get scared and then we'll find a way of coming back, I dare not say crawling back, and, and getting some sort of fudge that allows us to say we got some, some little extra bit but actually doesn't really change the substance. The, the trouble with this negotiation all along 
along, as, as you know, James, has been that one side holds nearly all the cards, the other side, the UK, holds very few cards. And if you're leaving one of the world's largest trade blocks, you're going to be pushed around and bullied by, by that trade block. And in the future, we're going to have to adjust to being a middle-sized European country that gets kicked around by the EU and by the US and others. And it's very difficult for many people in this country to come to terms with that reality, in my view. I mean, I mean the, the more optimistic take on... I, I, I don't agree that the, the, there, are, there are inherent asymmetries in negotiation that the UK government has made worse through its own actions, you know, triggering Article 50 before it knew what it wanted, allowing the negotiations to proceed in such a way where the EU, you know, to take the Chequers plan is a kind of classic example of this. The, the, the UK basically thought it was putting in things on security and defence cooperation as sweeteners to the deal on the economic part, saying, look, we know the EU is going to find it very hard to accept this single market in goods, so we'll put this security and defence stuff in there and hope that that makes them take a slightly different view of it. What's happened is the EU has pocketed the security and defence aspects of checkers, while, as you say, essentially making quite clear that they're not going to accept the economic aspects. I, I think that the challenge for the UK in future is can it work out how to navigate the global architecture as, as a mid-sized power with perhaps outside influence? You know, Can it work out how to flit between the different blocks that are emerging in both in regulatory terms and in geopolitical terms? You know, the EU, the US, the Pacific bloc, China, you know, how, how does, does the UK learn to box clever to maintain its position? I, I agree with that. One of the ironies is that on many of the key geopolitical issues, like the Iran nuclear deal, like climate change, like relations with Russia, it turns out that our interests are rather closely aligned with those of most EU countries, and in several areas, but trade being another one, we're not so close to the way the US sees the world, which doesn't mean that may not change in no. five or ten years' time. But right now, just when we're leaving the EU, it's actually a time when our geopolitically we need to line up quite closely with it. Although I would say that on the Iran deal, I think a lot of the UK's behaviour on that has been dictated by trying to show the EU that the UK is a European country. I think, weirdly enough, if the UK was not leaving the EU, I'm not sure that the UK's position on the Iran deal and, and its approach to US sanctions would be the same as it is now. Possibly, but I think the British, the British establishment worked so hard for the Iran deal of over 15 no. years that they probably quite closely committed to no. it anyway. But um, just, just back to the issue of your, your 40% chance of no deal, James. I mean, as I think there's two routes to no deal. One is there's no deal between the EU and the UK, which I think we both agree is quite unlikely. Yeah. That. No, I mean, I we're, we're getting pretty close to it, even though Mrs May may fight a few last-ditch last, last battles. The second route to no deal is the Parliament can't pass the deal, and we both agree that's more likely. But if it, if it looks like Parliament can't pass the deal and it votes it down, then what happens? You might actually get really no deal and we go over the cliff edge, but more likely Parliament will try and prevent no deal, either through instructing the government to go and get a different deal, which is what the Labour Party says, or through possibly leading to an election or possibly a referendum. So I think there are many, many alternatives to no deal which would move up the horizon if no deal seems to loom. Although I think there is a danger of what, what, what one might call kind of no deal by railway timetable. But the no deal planning kicks in on both yes, sides. Like the becomes, start of the First World War. Exactly. Yes, and becomes yes. hard to pull out of. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think once there is a deal, I think the, the one thing that everyone in the UK government believe that they have been copper bottom promised by the EU mm. is that the EU will say it is this deal or no deal. And that, I think, does kind of complicate... Things. Some people in the EU say that others have a slightly different tune, which is if, if, if the UK Parliament says to the government, we don't like this deal, but we want to change the political declaration to make it a softer Brexit, more overt customs union, I think the EU would actually buy that quite happily. And again, if the, if the if Parliament says actually we want to have another referendum and put this Brexit on, on hold, 
I think that you would actually buy that too. No, I, I think that, I mean, that is very... I, I, I don't dispute that. I mean, if the EU had the opportunity... You know, if the EU basically would like the UK to be Norway plus, you know, EEA and Customs Union or Remain, yes. I don't agree that if they had that, they might take that. I think what will be difficult in terms of is until the vote on the deal has taken place, I think the EU will suggest that there is no alternative to this Yes, it, well, you're right, which will help uh, Mrs May get the deal yeah. through Parliament, because the EU will weigh in and business leaders will weigh in and they'll all say, yeah. don't vote against this deal or it could be catastrophic. If we do vote against the deal, then the EU will try yeah, and help. Exactly. And I think the other thing, which is the other kind of question is... At the moment, the deal looks like Theresa May's deal. Once it is signed, it will, at least until Parliament votes on it, look like a deal agreed by 28 nations. Yes. And I think that will, that will give the deal some more momentum in Parliament. But, I, but again, I think that the numbers, the numbers get very tricky. And if the DUP won't vote for the deal, the numbers get incredibly difficult. My own guess is that not not large numbers of Labour MPs will vote with the government on this. Even if EU leaders ask them to do so, I'm not sure they will. It's difficult for Labour leaders to vote for the government. Thank you, Charles and James. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. In America, the midterm elections are always a good indicator of how the electorate feels about its president. So, what does it say about Trump's tenure that the Republicans have strengthened their hold on the Senate despite losing the House of Representatives? Freddie Gray argues in this week's magazine that it shows that Trump knows what he's doing. We're here in Chatham House to talk to Leslie Vinjamuri, head of the US and America's programme, and Kate Andrews, political commentator. So, Leslie, Trump tweeted that the results were a tremendous success for him. Was he right? It was a success for Democrats and it was a success for some Republicans. One of the interesting things about this race, of course, is that there will be many narratives that come out of it. The women, of course, is one of the big stories. 59% of women voted with the Democratic Party and we now are likely to have over, it looks like over 100 women represented in the House. But for for President Trump and for the Republicans, I think it was a significant loss in one very specific sense, which is that they will go now from controlling both houses of the legislature to having a divided government. And that's a very, very different context from what they've faced in the last two, year, two years. America has been divided, but Congress hasn't. And so now we will see a lot of pushback from the House, focus on investigations, subpoenas, things that President Trump really has not had to contend with. Kate, how do you think the Republicans fed? Well, Glenn Reynolds put it well. He's a commentator over in the States, and he said it wasn't a blue wave so much as it's a purple puddle. And I think that phrase works well because the Democrats clearly won the House, and that will be a victory for them. But interestingly, the Republicans have actually picked up seats in the Senate. So you have a truly divided Congress, which reflects a truly divided nation. I don't think we can make 
too much out of the victory in the House. I, I, I found this amazing statistic that um, a president's party has not lost House seats in only three midterms since the Civil War. They're very much viewed as a referendum on the presidency and, and can be quite a negative one. So it's not shocking that after an eight-year stronghold on the House that voters decided to give a little more power to the opposition. That's our system. It's a system of checks and balances. But it is still a win for the Democrats. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that both parties can truly claim some areas of success. Leslie is completely correct, though, that what the Republicans have really lost out on and what Barack Obama lost out on in 2010 was the opportunity to really change public policy, because very often you need full control of the House and the Senate to be able to do that. Trump will now have to compromise with the Democrats if he wants to get a budget through, if he wants to get policy through. The president doesn't necessarily have the best track record when it comes to reaching across the aisle, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out. And Leslie, were there any either victories or losses that you found particularly interesting? Well, I think for the Democrats, there has been this lingering question as to what will succeed in Trump's America, a progressive Democratic candidate or a moderate. Difficult to draw a clear lesson yet, but it looks like it's the moderate Democrats that have come out ahead. Two really significant races were lost for the Democrats. That's the governor races in Florida and in Georgia. Andrew Gillum lost, of course, in Florida, would have been the first African-American governor. And Stacey Abrams would have been the first female African-American governor anywhere in the nation. So very significant defeats, I think, for a certain part of the Democratic Party. And Kate, what about all these women who've, who've had victories? I mean, is that un, un, undebatedly a good, a good thing or are there downsides to it? No, I think so. I think it's wonderful to see that in Trump's America, women can be successful. So much of the rhetoric over the past two years is that, you know, it's a terrifying time to be a woman in America, that we're going to lose our privileges and our rights. And I always thought that language was was a bit of a stretch. And I think the midterms prove that even if you don't agree with someone politically, the success of women and particularly young women getting interested in politics, uh, I think is is a great thing in terms of in terms of winners and losers. The Democrats will be very disappointed that they couldn't take the governorships in, in Florida and Ohio two very, very key states for 2020. But of course, we've seen the loss of Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin. He's become very famous in America over the years because he took on the unions and he won. And the Democrats have been after him for a long time. But he also became very popular when people were talking about the Obama-Walker voter. Uh, Voters who voted for Barack Obama for the president, but also Scott Walker, the Republican, for their governor. The fact that the Democrats have taken back Wisconsin should also worry the Republicans who might require that state to win 2020 again. Yeah, a couple of really interesting things there. Uh, Donald Trump, while the Republican Party did not do well in any of those three states that we talk so much about as having been critical to his victory in 2016, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So that's really quite significant. The other race I think worth watching is um, was Kansas, so where Laura Kelly, a Democrat, won in a very, as governor, won in a very red state. So an interesting move in, in certain parts of the country where you would anticipate perhaps something very different. And in Texas, of course, Beto, who the the Democrats have really looked to and perhaps have looked to as even possibly a 2020 candidate, 
lost against Senator Cruz, but in Texas lost by only about three percentage point votes, percentage points. And so that's a, that's a very small loss for a Democratic senator in a state like Texas. And what do you think these results mean for the Democrats when we're looking ahead to 2020? Well, I think they do, it does come back to this point of division that things are, there are a lot of races in the in the country where yes we have a certain result but that but they were very very close america's tremendously divided and i think that if you're looking at the united states from europe especially the key take-home point here is that it's not at all clear now that things are determined in 2020 everything's on the table i think right now congress is on the table the presidency is on the table and so if you're trying to think about how to respond to trump's trade wars trump's policies there's there's a strong argument to be made that holding back that kicking the can down the road as we like to say in the united states is is possibly a wise strategy because the game could change quite dramatically in another 2 years if the democrats take control of the white house Okay, America was very divided in 2016. I mean, do you think Trump will be able to capitalize again on America being divided in 2020? I think it's absolutely possible. A lot will depend on whether or not the Democrats put up a candidate who can unite the country or one that is equally as divisive as Trump. And at the moment, I could see them going either way. It's it's hard to know who will take that spot. But, you know, the, the Republicans are going to have a tough time for the next two years. And I'm I'm very hopeful that the Democrats will treat this newfound power with great responsibility. It is right to look into many of the questions and allegations around Trump. But if this does become a witch hunt, and the only thing discussed for two years is whether or not he should be in the office, the Democrats won't have learned any of the lessons that they need to learn for 2020 if they're going to put forward a successful candidate. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who historically has voted Republican. I have been I, I don't support the president and, and his language and his rhetoric is has become increasingly violent, actually, over the past two weeks just leading up to the midterms. And I'm really glad that states like Nevada have given a bit of a boost to Democrats because those border states where that immigration argument is so crucial really needed to kick back on some of what he's been saying. But, you know, the Democrats shouldn't get too comfortable when Trump starts talking about protecting jobs again in those Rust Belt states. Those voters may very well swing back to him. I think Americans are confused right now. It's a politically volatile time. And, you know, anything could happen. I I think this leaves us with less clarity, not more. Leslie, I mean, do you think Trump's decision to focus so much on this anti-immigrant rhetoric was, was a bad idea and did backfire for him? Well, you know, what we're told actually is that the number one issue that drove a majority of Americans to the polls that that around which they voted was actually health care. Immigration may well have driven turnout because it was so toxic. The language, the rhetoric, the politics of the caravan sending the American military to uh, the borders, very controversial and, and not in keeping with the respect that we normally have for the integrity of the integrity of how we use the American, the U.S. military. It did inspire a backlash. It drove Democrats to the polls, not just Republicans. So I, But it's not clear to me that the president had a very good alternative. The economy was very strong. So if he wanted to get out an extra part of his base, if he drilled down on the economic gains, it's not clear how that would have played. Because, of course, the tax cuts brought some relief, some support to his base, but they brought much greater benefits, or at least they're perceived to have been having been brought much greater benefits to wealthy Americans and to corporate America. So if you'd really push the economic message, it's not clear that would have gotten actually the working class out to, to the polls. Just finally, Kate, do you think it's fair to say that after two years of chaos, you've actually returned to a standoff? 
(laughs) I think it's fair to say that actually the whole nation might feel some sense of relief that there is a check on the direction that the president in particular was moving. But, you know, a lot needs to be addressed in America. There are many criticisms of Obamacare. Yes, people were very concerned about health care, scared to lose rights around pre-existing conditions and whatnot. But, you know, we still have millions of people who are uninsured in America, you know, millions of people out of work. And if Americans feel like their politicians aren't addressing those needs, at some point they're going to weigh up who they think is going to do it better in 2020. And I actually think the Republicans could make a strong case that it will be them. It really depends on what the Democrats decide to hunker down on, what messages they go forward with. You know, they have had some success on the anti-Trump narrative. Now they need to become more positive as to the Republicans. And let's see who does it a bit better. Thank you both. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk, where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes Store. Last, this weekend, we'll be commemorating 100 years since the end of the Great War. In this week's Spectator, Liz Hunt, consulting editor at the Daily Mail, writes about a visit to her great-uncle's grave. Danny died at the age of 24 in 1918 from Spanish flu. Liz joins me now together with Glyn Prussell, chief historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Liz, you recently visited the grave of your great-uncle Danny. Can you tell us a bit more about your trip? Well, the story of Danny and Patrick, my great-uncle and my grandfather, who's Patrick, has been part of family law for very many years. And the great sort of narrative was that they passed each other going into the Battle of Mons, one coming out, one going in, and there was this shout that went up, is there a Mulholland there? That was their surname. And they answered. It was a chance encounter between two brothers, one going into battle, one coming out. And it was actually the last time they saw each other, only one of them survived. So I've grown up with that story, we all have. And um, it increasingly it was playing on my mind that we knew he was buried somewhere in Germany but no one had ever visited the grave Mm. and coming up to 100 years since his death this is Danny I just felt it was now or never and if not now then when so that's why we decided to make the trip on the spur of a moment about three or four weeks ago. And and was it easy to find the grave? I mean, was the information available? The information was available, courtesy of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. You sort of key in the name. Maybe it requires a little bit of fiddling around, you know, if you have any details about who your relative or ancestor served with, which battalion, which regiment, that all helps. But it was easy to find. And the name of the cemetery in central Germany, near the town of Cassel, came up and we knew where he was, what row he was in, where the grave would be. Glenn, can you tell us a bit more about what the Commonwealth War Graves Commission does? Well, the CWGC commemorates 1.7 million men and women who died serving with British and Commonwealth forces in both world wars. Uh, And we care for graves and memorials in about 23,000 different places in over 150 different countries and territories all around the world. And even here in the UK, you know, wherever you are, you're never more than a few miles away from, from one of our graves. 
And it's, of course, we, we look after the, the places, look after the graves of the dead, but it's also for the living. And I think it's so wonderful to hear of families discovering these places and visiting the graves, just as people did nearly 100 years ago. I mean, we were founded during the First World War uh, to commemorate the war dead in an entirely new way completely equal treatment, no distinction in terms of class or rank or race or religion. And I think those spaces still have a power today. And one of the most moving things for me during the centenary is hearing stories like Liz's of families going to these places and, and seeing these graves and, and still being moved. And it is off the beaten track. I mean, I think it's fair to say, you were saying in the piece, you know, it's clearly not as many people visit graves in Germany as, as the, the famous places like Tynecott in Belgium or the Tietval Memorial on the Somme. But I think they're all just as important as each other. Um, and certainly in terms of prisoners of war, this is one of the, the great kind of forgotten experiences of the war in many ways. Um, and after the war, the graves of prisoners of war in Germany were brought together into four big cemeteries. Uh, again, you can imagine after the war, it was difficult to think of British soldiers still being buried on German soil. But I think the strength of feeling of, of the fact that these people had served together they, they, they died together and they should remain together as comrades in arms, I think was very powerful at the time. And, and hopefully you found that place a, a fitting place to, to, to remember uh, your family member and for, for people to come together. It was, a, it was a wonderful place. I mean, I, I make very clear in the piece that it was extremely well tended. It was beautifully looked after. But there was a loneliness to it, a melancholy to it. And that was really brought home when you looked at the graves that had nothing on them. Nothing, you know, some, some had a few sort of weathered wreaths here and there or a little photograph or something written. But the vast majority, majority had nothing. Now, that's not to say they've never been visited, but I would think, given the location and given the time that has elapsed, it was very likely that many, like, my my great uncles had never been visited mm. before and yes you're right about the i i didn't say he was a prisoner of war he died in a prisoner of war camp having survived most of the war and then he fell victim to spanish flu at the end of it incredibly um, as so many of them that. did I, in the prison of war camps it's one of those great forgotten stories as well spanish flu and you know i think everywhere you look around the uk of course the people who were who were brought back to the uk for for medical treatment and who then died subsequently were could be buried by their families in the churchyards and cemeteries around the uk many of them have dates from the autumn of 1918 i mean we commemorate war dead up to 1921 and in fact there are about 75000 people who we commemorate who died after the 11th of November 1918. So I think that story of people dying around that time, because we know what happened, has a huge poignancy. Uh, I think it's worth remembering their sacrifices as well. Glenn, have you, I mean, have you noticed an uptake in people wanting to visit graves because of the centenary? Absolutely. I mean, it's been a gr one of the great things for us at the, at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission over the centenary is seeing this huge interest of people rediscovering family stories, reconnecting with, with their history of their community, or just wanting, feeling moved to go and visit these places. I mean, they've been there for, for nearly 100 years now. The, the main building work took place in the 20s and, and early 30s. Uh, so they have a history of themselves, these places too. But, you know, I think they still have a, a real power to move. And, and particularly because uh, in England, school children from every school were given the opportunity to go and visit. Uh, we're seeing lots and lots of, of school parties as well, but also people from across Europe. I mean, very interesting to see lots of Belgian and German visitors in our cemeteries and lots of French visitors visiting as well. So this is a story that is getting bigger and bigger. And I think this year, it's a, it's a good opportunity to reflect on, on what that war means to us now, uh, as well as reflecting on, on the history of those who took part as well. And there's, 
the Sunday is, of course, the centenary of the armistice. I mean, has visiting Danny's grave changed how you see Remembrance Sunday? This one will be special, for sure. You know, generally because it is the centenary, but also personally, this trip, this journey to visit his grave has very much brought home to us the, you know, the personal stories, the sacrifice, and just the the sadness the sadness of it all and you think of that you know that that's one home that's one family's experience with that that was visited on so many I think nobody who reads the papers in the last couple of weeks can escape you know these tragic stories and the the sadness is not easier to bear I think 100 years on you know you'd have to be a very hard-hearted person not to read some of those stories and not feel touched by them yeah, and, I, you know, we, we commemorate around just over a million people who lost their lives in the First World War from, from all over the world, you know, from India, from Canada, from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, the Caribbean, all over the, all over the world. And, you know, those are a million deaths, but they're also a million lives. And I think it's, it's really important that we see these graves and memorials, these commemorative spaces, as a starting point for discovery, as well as an ending point of a story. Uh, and I think it's been great to see so many people going through that journey that you went through, Liz. As well as Liz's piece, we also have a piece by Simon Jenkins in this week's issue in which he argues that there's such a thing as too much remembrance. I mean, Glenn, do you think he has a point? I, I, I'm not sure I would agree with too much. I think it's important that we interrogate what remembrance actually is and what it means. Uh, you know, for me, I think there is a danger that some of the, the familiar rituals of remembrance, you know, the poppy, the cenotaph, the minute silence, they're so familiar to us now. Uh, there's a, there is a danger that they're empty words and they're empty rituals. I think for remembrance to have real meaning, it has to be a combination of of the emotion, of that emotional response, which is still incredibly important, but also understanding. I think without those two things, without understanding the history behind uh, both the things that we're commemorating and those rituals of remembrance themselves, we do lose something. But I think generally over the course of the centenary, those two things have been apparent. You know, people are still moved by these places, by these moments. And they, they want to understand more. You know, they want to discover more, whether it's about the, the contribution of Indian labourers, uh, whether it's about conscientious objectors. You know, there's been a real surge of interest. And, and I hope that that will continue next year. You know, that's the real, the real crunch moment comes when there isn't all of these newspaper stories. In but I, I do think that um, the recent conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan, have focused the attention much, much more on the sacrifices of the First and Second World War and some subsequent conflicts in a way, you know, that w- if I, I wonder if it would be as big as it is now, this week, if, that, if those events hadn't happened in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. That's um, an interesting uh, point, know, absolutely. I, I really think for, for, for the younger generations, seeing the bodies built, brought back and the whole Royal Wharton Bassett and, you know, sort of the, the, the people who were living with the legacies of those injuries they endured and uh, suffered in Iraq and Afghanistan really sort of, in a way, nailed it for the younger generation and make and makes them much more sort of open to this, to what we're marking now. And finally, can I just ask you both how you will be marking Remembrance Sunday this weekend? Probably watching on TV, I have to say, because I think this will be such a, a significant one and I think that's the best way of feeling as part of the nation.
the nation's remembrance and obviously watching the uh, Festival of Remembrance at the Albert Hall on, on Saturday evening, that will be very much part of it. I'm very privileged to be able to be at the Cenotaph uh, and to be at Westminster Abbey for the service on Sunday. But funnily enough, I was reflecting on the beginning of the centenary in 2014, uh, where I was at a place called San Symphorian Cemetery, which is near Mons. And that cemetery is, is very special to me. It contains the graves of not only the first British soldier to die in combat on the Western Front, but also the last British and Commonwealth soldiers. Um, in fact, we have a, a video piece uh, on our social media pages that you can look at with a walk through the cemetery. It's been an incredible privilege to have been involved in, in these events over the four years. Uh, and I think at Westminster Abbey, it will be a, uh, an interesting moment to reflect on, um, I think, what is an unprecedented and probably will never be seen again uh, process of, of commemoration over several years. Liz and Lynn, thank you for joining. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do let us know on the iTunes store. You can subscribe, rate and review it all there. We always like to hear from you. And just a reminder that if you'd only like to hear the Spectator podcast, you can find its new home when you search Spectator podcast on the iTunes store. And do pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as Tom Holland on the parallels between Trump and Caesar, Laura Freeman on our obsession with Instagram, and Tim Lawrence's diary. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.